Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs from Muhammad. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please, practice excellent self and community care while listening. How many more of our children will die unnecessarily? before we fight back effectively? How many other life forms or species will we extinct before we dramatically escalate our actions to be commensurate with the level of threat we're currently facing? I first had the honor of learning from Sockage Ward in 2011 during one of his warrior trainings on Charles Eliot's land in Saanich in so-called British Columbia. In this dialogue, we discuss various representations of warriors, co-optation, the importance of developing strategic thinkers, the differences between warriors and soldiers, machismo, how to strengthen warrior spirits, the creation of indigenous revolutionary doctrines, and healing from trauma through materially engaging the process of decolonization. Let me step back and tell you a little bit about today's guest. Sakic belongs to the Wolf Clan, He is Mi'kmaq from the community of Eskinobich, Burnt Church First Nation, New Brunswick. He's the father of nine children and four grandchildren. He resides in Shikswahamel First Nation, B.C., with his wife Melody Andrews and their children. Sakic is a veteran of both the Canadian and American militaries. He finished his military career at the rank of sergeant in an elite airborne unit. Wanting to pursue academics, he went to university and immersed himself in politics, where he graduated from the University of New Brunswick from the Honors Program with a bachelor's degree in political science, with a specialization in international relations. Recognizing the value of an academic background, he continued to advance his studies and attended the University of Victoria, where he completed a master's degree in Indigenous Governance. Sakic has a long history of advocating and protecting First Nations' inherent responsibilities and freedoms, having spent the last 24 years fighting the government and industry. Sakic has experience in international relations, where he speaks on behalf of the Mi'kmaq Nation at the United Nations Working Group for Indigenous Populations. Having taught, organized, advised, and led various warrior societies from all over Turtle Island, down into Guatemala and Borique, Puerto Rico, Sakic has made warriorhood his way of life. He's been on over a dozen warrior operations and countless protest actions. He dedicates all his time to developing warrior teachings and instructing warrior societies from all over. Good afternoon, Sakic. It's so great to be in dialogue with you. Thank you so much for your time and energy today. How are you doing? I'm doing good, and thanks for having me. Appreciate mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I want to start off by acknowledging the land that I'm on right now, which is the traditional territory of the Ohlone, uh, so the Amamutsan in so-called Santa Cruz, California. Great, great. And I'm going to do the same also. And I'm in my wife's territory of the Stalo people, and it belongs to the Stalo nation. Thank you for that. 
so there's so much that we could get into. I want to start off by sharing that I sincerely appreciate your work. Uh, I found it really inspiring and invigorating for a number of years now, especially uh, the clarity with which you name some of the work that needs to be done right now and inviting folks to recognize, again, as simply as possible, what their role and their relationship is in that struggle. Um, so first off, thank you so much for the work that you do, because uh, I find it so tremendously important in the world right now. Thank you. Thank you. And I think that is my aim is just to cut through all the, the illusions, the half-truths, everything I can and try to get as much information out in the most um, clear way possible. Mm -hmm. Right. So with that in mind, I know that so much of your work involves warriorship and the sort of revitalization of warrior societies. And I know that in a lot of people's imaginations, the notion of warriorship has been so militarized. And by that, I mean by whether it's, say, the U.S. or Canadian military industrial complex. So mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about what you mean when you talk about warrior societies in this moment in time, please? Okay, there's a, there's a lot to that. Um, let's, let's kind of look at the idea that... Uh, Warriors and warrior societies are something that belonged to our people for thousands of years. So this modern manifestation that we kind of see of warrior societies, say from the post-Oka crisis of 1990 in a Mohawk territory, there has been an emphasis, particularly with the government and media, to make warrior societies look more like, uh, in their eyes, you know, the militant extremists. And we've seen that terminology shift over from militant extremists to terrorist. So there is a visual emphasis by government and media to really make indigenous warrior societies look a lot like they they fit this role, this visual role of kind of the, the guerrilla terrorist kind of thing. Now, that's not, you know, obviously that's not entirely true when we talk about what is the role of warrior and, and kind of the responsibilities and duties they have. So let me clear that up as best I can uh, a little bit here so we can see some distinctions, right? And first off, yes, there is a militant role. And what I mean by that is there is a role of protection. And indigenous warrior societies kind of come to the forefront when they take that part of their role, when they, they fulfill that part. And it's because this is the part that's the most contentious, the most controversial. So warrior societies tend not to be seen when they're doing other work, where they're fulfilling the role of um, protection and defending the land and defending the people. That's almost the only times we ever see them, at least, you know, in, in the um, mainstream media anyway. Now, warrior societies, though, have a much broader role than just protection. And this includes things like, uh, well, it, it, particularly post-colonial period, it, it, it's about reviving things such as ceremonies, rituals, concepts, duties, things that relate to the role, and in particular, how it shows the, the connection in relationship to your, your homeland. So what we're seeing is like a cultural resurgence effort that goes with becoming this warrior. And this is stuff that obviously, you know, it won't make the news. You don't see people on in the communities generally talking about what do warriors do when they're not out at some blockade or something like that. But honestly, that's that's probably like 80 or 90% of all our work is the deep colonization, the rebuilding of the traditional organization around warriors and warrior societies. Now, let me um, address this idea of the visual imagery of this, this warrior, because I, I know that kind of really distorts and throws people off pretty easily. And, and it kind of really feeds the feeling and the message that the, the government gives when they say, you know, warriors are just a bunch of, of terrorists or militant extremists. When we fulfill the role of protector, the defender of, of, of our homelands and of our people and of our way of life, you do take on this militant role, just like our ancestors did, right? It's no different than when we're talking about Geronimo comes a uh, crazy horse, any of our ancestors. It, it's no different. So in that role, we play out that function of defense. And it's, it's done in, in this, or sometimes it's done in this militaristic way. The imagery looks a lot like that of a soldier. And I think that becomes confusing for people because you see the camouflage, perhaps in some cases you might even see weapons. And then people kind of make these mistakes. You either see the indigenous warrior as this kind of militant extremist slash terrorist, or you get this impression they're, they're, they're like a, a colonial soldier. They're almost no different than a soldier that serves with Canadian or American militaries. Now, on that distinction, I've, I've, I've seen a lot of confusion because there's, there's a lot of overlap 
of how people think about maybe being a veteran of the U.S. or Canadian military thinking you're a warrior, right? And, and that's not the case. So let's be clear on that. Soldiers serve the colonial state. They serve a government. They serve a, a governing body. They serve politicians. That's where they get their march rules. Warriors serve the people. They serve the homeland. And, and in particular, the life of the homeland. So we're not just talking about human life, but all life of the homeland. And they serve the next seven generations. So this is a really, really big distinction because when your marching orders come from your homeland, when they come from the people, when it comes from protecting that life in the next seven generations, you'll find yourself in opposition to colonial governments using their own forces, whether it's law enforcement or military, using those forces to help empower companies or industries that are coming in there to destroy your homeland. So you'll find them in opposition. And this is why. So it's hard when people start thinking indigenous warriors are no different or are the same as U.S. or Canadian soldiers, right? And in truth, though, they're 180 degrees of difference. Right. I really appreciate your making that distinction, particularly considering the levels of propaganda and disinformation to make it plain that we're saturated in right now. I mean, talk about, right, an Orwellian moment, black as white, good as evil, And so many of us are just so inundated in those sort of diversionary tactics. And so I'm also wondering, amidst all of that, how you support folks rekindling warrior spirits. And I know that's a huge question, right? Again, so much confusion and fear and invitations to sell out for some folks to make it plain um, or to tokenize or to buy into incrementalism. And so, again, I know it's an epic question, but how do you support people? (laughs) And in some ways, it's actually quite simple. Oh, I don't know, ethics, doing the right thing, caring about justice, (laughs) making your ancestors spread. Like, this does not need to be so complicated. But I'm so curious to know how you address that with the work that you do and the folks that you work with. Well, you're right. Like, any of these questions you're going to ask, there's so much depth, because we're talking, you know, thousands and thousands of years of history behind border societies. And in particular, we're talking 500 years of post-colonial, post-contact, contentious history. So there's a lot here, and there's a lot of dispelling. So you notice my, my answering is usually not just clear cut. There's, there's a lot there I'm trying to undo in my answer. But regarding the warrior spirit, you know, this, this is critical. And this is really hard because it's, it's such an, an abstract notion, right? But here's what we do. Or at least, let me, let me care for that. I think that a lot of times we do things on a case-by-case scenario. But I'll give you some examples of of what I tried to do anyways. One is we want to reconnect our people back to our history. Because, again, we tend to think of warriors as something in the past, some kind of either they were the savages of the past or the romanticized notion of the noble savage. But as of the late 1800s, they no longer exist. So I spend a lot of time reminding people of this history. And I, I point at these very specific periods that we could see where these, the waxing and waning of warrior societies. And of course, we've seen, you know, like the, the Christian influence through residential schools, boarding schools, or in, in Central America, we have, uh, they have the missions. And the minute our people were pulled into those schools, you know, these are schools of assimilation, right? Obviously, there was no reminder. There was no passing on of teachings of, of the role of warrior. You can't imagine a, a priest or a nun talking to indigenous kids and saying, you were born to be warriors. You're born to protect your land. You're born to stop invasions from coming in and destroying your land. I mean, that's, that's you know, that's a counter message to, to the whole European empire. So you wouldn't hear that. And if anything, it's the exact opposite. It's all about the disconnect, about our responsibilities to our land, our relationship to our land, and our relationship to our, our ancestors who brought that role forward for us. So part of what we do is we try to make the connection. And that's usually the, the, the starting point, that we were warriors and we're meant to be warriors now. So coming back to that, I usually use this exercise of talking about, the, you can find the word warrior in our language. So we talk about the different nations and all their different words for warriors. And we could see, once we revive that word, we could embed it usually into it is the role of protector or guardian or, or defender. We could start to see there was an authentic role for us in, in what we did. And then from there, we start to try to build on that warrior spirit. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you an example of uh, how we address this, in particular, talking about warrior spirit. I think there's a there's a, an issue, a phenomenon, where a lot of our people are pulled. There's a calling to their warrior spirit to do something. 
And when I talk about doing something, that means like a, to be challenged, to take on something perhaps as the underdog or, or to take on a monumental fight or something they feel that is opposing some kind of oppression. And in doing so, though, because of the, the schools like residential schools, missions and boarding schools, we don't know how to use that spirit correctly. So we have this, what we refer to as a fighting spirit. You have this challenging kind of mentality. You're ready to take on the odds. You're ready to do this. But you have no way of knowing how to direct that spirit. So this fighting spirit, unfortunately, gets channeled towards things like gangs, law enforcement, or the military. Right? And that's what happened in my particular case. When I was a kid and I didn't know anything about my traditions, in particular around war societies, I had this very powerful calling to be a part of a militarized type of life. And I didn't know my history that well. So what happened, obviously, is I'm looking for an outlet, and I first chose the Canadian military. And I started with them, and I found they were very soft compared to what I wanted in terms of challenge. So then I went over to the American military, and not knowing the politics of history, I was easily brainwashed. And the only thing I wanted to do at that time was look for a good fight. That's all I was concerned about. And I figured if anybody's going to get to a fight, it's going to be the American military. So I joined them. And after six years of military service and, and getting out, I'd found that, you know, this isn't what I was really looking for. This wasn't the noble fight. This wasn't the honorable life that I had imagined. I think it was, it was then where I started to kind of question a little bit, started to wonder, why didn't that fulfill my expectations of what I thought of as this kind of noble, honorable way of defending something you think is good? And it, it becomes that this, this idea that there are no teachings around honor. There's no teachings around justice. There's no teachings around what is a noble fight. All there is is acquiring the physical skills you need to be in implementation of force. That's it. Right? So having re-engaged with my people and come back to my culture, I had realized it was in war the role of warrior in warrior societies where I had started to fulfill that calling that I really felt as this young kid and realizing this is what I wanted. This is the fight I'm talking about. This is the fight not just for freedom. But in particular, freedom for my very people, the very people I live with. I could look on the outside and I could see in my community, this is the people that are being oppressed. And these are these are the people that need some kind of, of um, experience of freedom. So it became much more clear to me that becoming that warrior really started to satisfy that portion of the warrior spirit. What happens is when we grow up in an assimilated society, we have this problem of, or not a problem, but a dilemma of having this powerful fighting spirit but no real outlet for it. So we choose law enforcement, soldier, become a soldier, or turn towards gangs, right? But what we have to do, or the work that lays ahead of us, is to be able to bring back these warrior teachings that help guide that fighting spirit and turn it, develop it into that warrior spirit. Because the difference is the warrior spirit knows how to use that energy of the fighting spirit to do the honorable things. And in our case, it's, it's about fulfilling sacred responsibility. So I do a lot of discussion, talk, and hopefully development around shifting our people from a fighting spirit into that warrior spirit. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, it reminds me of co-optation and what a force to be reckoned with co-optation is right now. We have so much time and energy and resources and lives um, and people that do have, right, whether it is good intentions or passion to bring about the needed transformations in their cultures or communities. But when, right, the dominant tracks that were kind of siloed into by the hegemonic culture are ones that, again, right, yeah, encourage us into whether it's a lateral violence or horizontal yes. hostility also, it can be so difficult to imagine outside of those dominant frames that we're saturated in. So yeah, that educational piece seems huge. It reminds me actually of, so when I was in grad school at the University of Hawaii, I took a class with Dr. Julie Kaumea that was an incredible, incredible course on indigenous and post-colonial approaches to education. And she assigned an article of hers that talked about the way that the tourist industry in Hawaii has affected the curricula that's offered in the mainstream educational system and offering a sort of curricula of aloha that in some ways, according to the textbooks and all the resources that she examined, offer the kind of most sanitized and Ooh. anesthetized and whitewashed and, of course, right, exoticized and eroticized and easily consumable 
aspects of Hawaiian culture that you know we're going to be more likely to say have a Hawaiian woman in this eroticized, right, sort of mm. easily consumed um, depiction of a hula dancer, but with nothing about, right, Pacific Island warrior traditions or mm. anything that could encourage folks to fight back as opposed to to just be assimilated into the dominant colonial society. So it seems like the uh, to make it plain, the war um, in so many ways is so centralized within our capacity to imagine or to just be brainwashed by yeah. the propaganda that we're getting for sure from mainstream educational institutions, pop cultures, military propaganda, mm-hmm. so many other spaces also. Well, isn't it always the problem when you have a, a like an asymmetrical relationship with a force that's more powerful than that seeks to control the definition of your identity. Because as they control your identity, of course they're not going to control it in such a way that's um, detrimental to them. It'll be controlled in such a way that they can they can have power over it, that they could eliminate any kind of risk or any kind of threats uh, that are, are shaped in that identity, right? And and, and again, like when, we, when we try to educate about being warriors, half the time, that's, that's what we're doing, is dispelling all these kind of consumer militaristic notions of what it means to be this warrior. It becomes challenging in that sense. And then, as you mentioned earlier, the co-optation thing, uh, a friend of mine, John Swift, he's a Shinobi, he had said it best. He, had, he talked about this and we were discussing the whole problem with co-optation and how it becomes so frustrating you have to get around it. And of course, the dialogue went back to economic dependence of how a colonial state puts us in a, purposely puts us in this condition of impoverishment so that our politics can be controlled. And it's, you know, through the policy of economic dependency. He said he spoke with a, an elder, and the elder said to him, he said, you know, our problem is we haven't learned to outwit the master trapper. They said the colonizer is the master trapper. He creates the problem, that's the trap. And then eventually offers us these little pieces of bait, economic development, something will give us a little bit of money, give us a job or two or something. And it says, unfortunately, we always go for the bait. We're always caught in the trap. And that's the framework you're speaking of, right? And this is how we're always controlled. So we need to be able to be the hunter of that trapper. We need to think outside the framework of the trap itself to start finding ways to bypass it and come around and be able to hunt that trapper as that trapper intends to hunt our people. Mm, thank you for that. Yeah, I would love to just go there so far as strategy is concerned, because that's of the essence, if you ask me in a moment in time such as this, where, of course, right, there are challenges that we're facing are centuries old, and at the same time, the level of intersecting crises that we're saturated in, in a moment in time such as this, um, especially with violence to the land and our bodies being what it is right now, seems like a great time to be prioritizing and triaging, so to speak, as intentionally as possible with the limited time and energy and resources that we have and folks that in this moment do have a clarity of consciousness, um, that have done some of the work to be able to decolonize their mind and all of the things interconnected. So instead of just kind of, you know, hoping that other people will hop on board and waiting for some kind of critical mass, taking really seriously with the folks that are on board right now, how to strategize with, again, our limited time and energy. Could you talk a little bit about that, please? Uh, Sure. I think when I first talked strategy, just as you said, you know, I, I try to define the boundaries that we exist in, and that's, uh, you know, we have the the most limitations in terms of we don't have resources, we don't have people power, we don't have all the materials, the money, the budget. So it puts us in this place where we feel almost hopeless, right? We feel like, well, you know, even if we want to, how can we stand against an empire when we have so little? So I come back to this Japanese proverb that says strength is overcome by strategy. If we can't out-muscle the empire, we have to be able to outthink it. So I am always harping on strategic studies, particularly in warrior societies. We're always, always talking about strategy and not just talking about it, but we're always contributing, like, where have we learned a new source of thinking about strategy? What, what have we learned from case studies from different movements and um, different resistance? And it brings me back to this idea that I had proposed to the Indigenous Governance Department where I was uh, – uh, do my master's degree, that I was thinking about doing my PhD on producing an indigenous revolutionary doctrine. Because we don't have, 
if you think about the revolutionary doctrines that exist now, most people turn to like Mao from China or um, Che Guevara from, from Cuba. And these represent different sets of what's called pre-revolutionary conditions. So we can't develop those, or we can't just accept those models and, and completely adopt them to fit our, our, our needs because they may be so different in terms of the pre-revolutionary conditions that it doesn't match what we're trying to do. So we need to do an examination, an evaluation of what are our pre-revolutionary conditions and what are ways that we could even incrementally work ourselves out of this asymmetric relationship. We can create some form of power or assembly of multiple powers that will give us some advantage in this fight. I think right now a lot of people aren't there yet. Even if you've been in, we'll say, uh, an activist or resistance, resistance kind of lifestyle for a long time, it's been my experience that most people aren't ready for that discussion yet. I think it's really going to take us some time to develop that and to really, really think it out. I'm not saying we're not ready to develop strategy. I'm just saying we need to develop strategic thinkers that could talk about strategy in a real way. Most of our conflicts, most of our, our actions are really at what's called the tactical level. That means on the ground, localized level. And rarely do they have any strategic goals. So we're kind of, we're very reactionary. We tend to respond to, say, industrial encroachment or uh, a law about the new past. In that reactionary nature, we are easily controlled because we are just reacting to the initiative of the opposition. We need to go step back and say, what is our strategy? What are we doing in terms of building towards our freedom or, or building our nations and force the opposition have to react to us as opposed to us to them? We need to develop these strategic thinkers that sit down and have these kind of dialogues because it's going to have to be a very extensive dialogue to offset all the advantages empire has over us. But I do, I, I don't mean to my discouraging, I'm not saying they were the same possible. I'm just saying, let's start doing this. Let's start developing strategic minded individuals that have the same level of, I would say, uh, uh, military conflict style thinking that, say, uh, a Western general would have. 20, 30 years of experience of resistance and be able to sit down and say, yes, here's how we could start to look at this situation. Here's some of the courses of action to take, or here's some of the things we need to start building towards in the next five, 10 years to take on these new fights. So we do need to develop these strategic thinkers and then to start getting on the idea of an indigenous revolutionary doctrine. Thank you for that. Could you talk a little bit more about how you imagine that actually taking place? So creating the strategic thinkers and or bringing together the strategic thinkers to be able to do that work? Because I know that it's sort of lack right now in so many of our communities that I'm personally very concerned about. So this is exactly part of why a little over two years ago, I founded this grassroots adult freedom school to be in community, right, entirely financially accessible so that folks that are interested can come together and have these conversations um, and to reflect upon the praxis that they're already engaged in in community in a way that's not cost prohibitive, in a way that can be culturally meaningful and relevant, in a way that is accessible to parents and to families and so on and so forth. But I find that I'm really concerned about how few of those kinds of projects there are to speak diplomatically. And so what do you feel like are some of the ways that those sort of convergences can happen right now to be pooling that wisdom and experience and skepticism and curiosity together? Well, this is why I think my work kind of, for me, is really clear. My work with Warriors and Warrior Societies, these are the, the houses of tactical, strategic, and business thought, right? This is where we develop it. We take the average person who usually starts as an activist, um, maybe involved in non-violence, peaceful activism, but after a couple of years in that, they're frustrated, they learn that this, that's not working, they want to go and do more. Or maybe they become um, connected to their culture. And by that route, they start moving into the warrior societies, understanding that's a traditional role. And it's here that we start to develop individual skill sets that they need to be able to protect their homelands and, and their people. But beyond that, as they start moving into leadership positions, they're starting to do tactical and strategic studies. So after years of this, they can have dialogues. They can sit down and discuss uh, what are some of the pros and cons of Che Guevara's Foucault theory, theory versus Mao versus Rev uh, Russian revolutionary theory. And they can have those kind of dialogues and how they would actually maybe draw on some advantages from those series 
and draw them into indigenous fights here in the Americas, or how we sometimes see the replication. Like when people don't know what else to do, we only replicate what we know. And if our only way of knowing about revolution or conflict is, say, Marxist critique, then that's all we do. We go to the streets and we start using Marxist critique as a way of addressing our anti-Western imperial views. But there has to be some other way, right? And this is what we're trying to develop in warrior societies is what this looks like. So once there is this kind of tactical up to supposedly strategic level thinkers, the next thing we do is we start making those convergences we talked to you about, or you mentioned. We go to conflicts when we see other conflicts going on, as long as they have the right goals in mind. If they're talking about reformism and basically just fighting to get a bigger piece of the pie, no, that, that has nothing to do with us. But if they're really fighting for their people and really want to protect their land, keep out in industrial destruction, then we'll get involved. And sometimes it's behind the scenes. And we'll go there and simply advise. We'll go there with the intent of trying to help them develop a strategic thought. I put together a course on how people can learn strategy development. Or we could just simply advise on what they already have. They say, this is our strategic goal. This is what we're trying to do. Do you have any ideas about this? And we'll try to advise on maybe the tactics that can use with that strategy and stuff. But what we're really trying to get them into is the idea that half of our fight is all the planning and preparing that we need to do, as opposed to just simply go out, engage in some kind of safety blockade, and start thinking, all right, how do we make this better? Because that's kind of the reverse way of doing it, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're saying, do all your planning, do all your preparing, and launch your actions on your own agenda according to those plans and preparations, not just strategy. So we go out purposely to connect with groups, and we've been down to... Um, Chiapas, Mexico, we've done a little bit of work with the Zapatista, select people within the Zapatista group. And then we've been into Guatemala to work with people that are uh, confronting mining in their territory. And then I went to work with people in Orte, which is a Taino homeland, Puerto Rico. And they were uh, opposed in Monsanto. And sometime in the future, I might be heading to South America. And again, it's to give them strategic advice. So my contribution is not my physical standing there holding a sign or even engaged on the blockade with them. It's really, how can I help give them what we refer to as a force multiplier, the ability to outthink your opponent? How can I give them that kind of capability by sitting down and teaching them, right? And that's what we export, I would say. Export this ability to strategize and see a situation from a strategic point of view. Yeah, thank you for that. So I have a question for you around inspiration. So often, of course, some of the big names, the Maos, the Che's, for example, inspiration from the Russian Revolution and the like get talked about quite a lot um, in certain spaces on this continent mm -hmm. at the expense of the traditions that are native to this continent. And so I'm curious to put that in conversation with everything that you've been talking about? Um, could an advantage be potentially, for example, drawing upon traditions that maybe also haven't been studied as thoroughly by the CIA because they right, are yes. not the usual suspects, so to speak? And yes. this isn't, you know, maybe part two of the same inquiry. It's not exactly the same as what I just asked, but it's just interesting. A buddy last night shared with me an article that had been written by I want to say maybe it was an Israeli architect talking about how the Israeli defense forces, maybe allegedly they were actually uh, reading Deleuze and Guthrie and were taking seriously postmodernist approaches in certain aspects of their warfare, such as, for example, um, penetrating buildings, so to speak, through breaking down walls as opposed to going through the conventional approaches such as doors and the like, or the use mm -hmm. of underground tunnels and the like, just sort of innovating outside of the box according to the kinds of right whether it's tactics or otherwise that people might be sort of reasonably anticipating so totally divergent influence for sure not advocating folks take postmodernism seriously nor to losing but that you know element of surprise so to speak but putting yes. that in conversation with native traditions um as opposed to again the mostly right Eurocentric heteropatriarchal traditions that people usually talk about in these dialogues. Yeah. So coming back to the beginning, you know that, right? It's a Eurocentric patriarchal. Whether we're talking Marx or or Mao or Che, it, it comes from kind of the same place of oppositional thought to empire, right? And really how much real integrity does that have on our land? So when you start to incorporate our, our traditional values, our way of conceptualizing the world and having a relationship with that land. You know, it, it, it doesn't fit in that way. 
And then on top of that, it doesn't fit what I referred to earlier as the pre-revolutionary conditions. Whether you're talking Russia, Cuba, and even look at India, look at the, the strategy of pacifism there. Their pre-revolutionary conditions were very different than ours. And this is where people miss this. You know, they, a lot of our indigenous activists automatically adopt Che or Maoist or, or Gandhi without even thinking about what influenced them to think in those revolutionary ways. And one of the biggest things, one of the biggest obstacles is the question of population. Whether you talk in Russia, India, and to some degree Cuba, the majority of the population were people that were not the colonizer. Now, Cuba is a little bit different, but think of India and, and Russia. So India in particular has a British colonizer, but they don't make up the majority of the population. You got well over 90% of the population were Indians. So if I create a pacifist strategy, what I'm really doing is looking to create a connection. I'm creating appeals, maybe even using martyrdom, so that people who are me, ethnically and geographically, will feel that that's one of us being hurt. That's one of us suffering under British oppression. One of us being subjected to unfair laws and stuff. And it has its ability to create appeals, right? But you take those very same conditions and you bring them into the Americas, it's a different story. So here we make up, what, roughly a little bit more than 4% of the population. How is it that I'm going to get the colonizer, colonial society, to somehow side with me if I display some kind of martyrdom strategy around, let's say I'm getting hurt, or perhaps maybe even a, a warrior goes to jail, prison, or is killed? Will the colonizing society really side with us? And obviously they have it. We have many ex examples of indigenous people suffering to the point of dying and there's been no massive mobilization by the colonizer because it's against their interest, right? If we're tackling the very things that gives them power and privilege, they really want to sympathize with us. They may give us the moral pat on the back, but that's the extent of it, right? So our pre-revolutionary conditions are very, very different than those kind of places. So we have to be able to think outside of that. We have to be able to think about the typical actions or strategies that require broad-based social mobilization. And those are usually most of those revolutionary thoughts. Now, I could I could draw on Che, for instance, a little bit. And I could say with the Foucault theory, the idea there was he felt the conditions were ripe for revolution. You just needed somebody to start it, to inspire it. Now, are we there? Are we at a point where indigenous people are ripe for some form? Maybe incipient revolution where it's all about developing and building and creating those organizations or institutions of resistance? Maybe. Or maybe all we need is some kind of inspiration, some group that'll go out and start doing it. And then we start saying, yeah, I want to replicate that. I like what they're doing. I've been wanting to do it myself, but now I see it and I respect that. So maybe there's some of that there. But really, we have to be able to think outside these strategies that already have counter strategies well developed by the Western Empire. So everything from a counter Russian revolutionary strategy to a counter, you know, obviously Marxist, to a counter, say, Foucault theory that Shane would endorse, um, they've already been developed. They've already been thought about. We need something new, something, as you're saying, we'll think outside the box. And like the Israelis, and the Israelis are an innovative colonizer in a sense that when it comes down to their military doctrine, they are more flexible to the point where the American military turns to Israelis a lot of times and seeks new tactics. Because a lot of times the Israelis are developing all kinds of new tactics on how to quell uprising, or how to um, impose colonial policies upon the Palestinians. So the Americans turn to them for innovation a lot of times. Right? So we can look at who feeds the empire innovative tactical thought. And one of the biggest contributors would be the Israelis. Understanding that approach that the Israelis are taking in terms of always trying to keep their tactics fresh, un uh, unpredictable, we need to kind of draw on the same approach ourselves. And this is why I've never been a, a big fan of the typical blockades and things like that, because really we're just using the same tool over and over and over. What I prefer, or at least my approach, is to every conflict zone I go to, I'll try to study it as best I can while I'm there. And then, based on the situation itself and the, the factors involved, come up with the tactics that fit the strategy of that moment. So in one place, it may call for a blockade. At another place, it might call for something more like direct action, like the, the blocking of heavy equipment or, or um, the going out and seizure of, of uh, uh, industrial tools. Or maybe it, in another case, it might involve um, 
a public relations campaign against a, an individual that owns a company. But every conflict should be treated case by case. And we look for those innovative points based on the vulnerabilities of, that you, you arrive at in that assessment. Right. It seems like being adaptive and flexible is indispensable. Um, if there was an ever a time for being formulaic, it seems like now was definitely not that time. And so that um, having the, in some ways, both humility to do that after and through constantly doing your homework and right learning from other people's so that we're not just reinventing the wheel unnecessarily. But then also, it seems like there can be an element of courage actually trying something different in some instances that I don't know if perhaps some folks are apprehensive about that, but it seems like that's also an element to not just repeating what you've seen done before and maybe even in previous generations where it wasn't actually effective, but it's just mm -hmm. so associated with whether it's some revolutionary or decolonial ethos or aesthetic or whatever it might be with the blockades and other tactics we could talk about too that do seem to get really romanticized. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. When we enter into a new conflict, our minds have to be open. It's, it's hard to let go of what we thought of as prior, say, victories. We always want to replicate the same thing. It becomes almost a template, but it's not going to work, not in every situation. We have to open our minds to every conflict you go in and treat it as a brand new conflict, whereas the, situ the strategic situation will dictate to you what the real answer should be, right? And I guess, you know, you mentioned the idea of being flexible, right? So I guess really, you know, as a, as a real powerful principle, around strategy development is the ability to be flexible because that's what makes you unpredictable. You're not seizing on the same tactic over and over or going for the same strategic objectives every time. You might be shifting stuff, right? And this is where I come back to this idea when I, um, when I get people thinking strategy and really working out for a while, when they think they almost have this very rigid formulated process in their mind about how to get strategy, they think they nailed it. And that's when I say, well, Bruce Lee said, be like water. Mm -hmm. And we have to be. When it comes down to strategy development, you have to be like water, meaning that you can adapt and shape yourself to every single situation as it, it presents itself to you. Mm -hmm. Right. So this has me wondering about switching course slightly, again, activating folks or inviting folks to remember who they are or to be able to reconnect with or reclaim aspects of their lineages or their ancestry that could support them doing this work in a really grounded and centered way that's not just kind of flighty or that is rooted again in a trajectory and in a history um, and in relationship. Could you talk a little bit about when you work with people and perhaps depending upon their lineage? So if you're working with Native folks, if you're working with settlers or occupiers, if you're working okay. with people of, say, mixed status families, what is supportive of people in, again, taking the next step if we're getting specific about moving from, as you might have spoken to, you know, some years or decades in organizing or activism and in this moment in time realizing the same old, same old is insufficient to make it plain. Um, and so really supporting people being bold or courageous in taking the steps that are necessary to be able to support the land and our families and communities mm -hmm. and survivance right now. Well, we can talk about that. We can talk about what inspires people. I think the action that speaks so much louder than the words when it comes down to inspiring people. And, and I'll give you an example. In my community back in 2000, uh, we were fighting to protect our, our traditional fisheries. And the government sent in uh, several provinces worth of law enforcement, the Department of Fisheries of Oceans and, and the federal police, the RCMP. And they were trying to suppress us. They're trying to conform or force us to conform into a commercialized fishery. And we said, no, we want to fish according to our traditional ways. So it created this conflict. And in the beginning, when I was trying to inspire my community to come out and fight, there was only me and maybe four other people in one little 12-foot boat. You look out our, in our bay, and it's just crowded with law enforcement boats out there. And then I knew, you know, I could sit here and try to encourage through words, but will that be the tipping point? Will that really just get people to move and say, yes, I'll come out with you, let's go do this? Or do I have to go out and do it myself and show them it can be done? And that's what we did. Myself and a few others, we went out and we made it happen. Now we got a lot of bruises, a lot of a lot of mace, a lot of <laughs> a lot of counter revolutionary uh, impacts in the process. But what it did was get the community to a point where they felt, you know, 
this isn't imaginary. This isn't some fairy tale of resistance. You know, a small group of people are out there with one boat doing it. Now, what happens when you have 200 people out there doing it? And that's exactly what happened. My community got on board, and they started going out and protecting the fisheries in their own little fishing boats. And then we'd have somewhere around 60 and 18 boats out there filled with people on their boats engaging law enforcement and, you know, holding them off so that uh, the rest of us could do traditional fishery. So from my experience, more importantly, that is your ability to set that example and put it into practice. And then people feel inspired by what they see as opposed to what they hear. Usually it's designed around the dialogue of justice and responsibility to the land. And that's most of the dialogue will go in that direction. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, it sure seems like if there has ever been a time for, and there are many, now is definitely also one of those times to just do the thing the last time I checked, right? And then if we can, right, <laughs> based upon that, also learn in a way that is so much more effective than just sort of theorizing abstractly divorced from practice on the ground. So it seems like getting that feedback on a regular basis in terms of what actually is and isn't working on the ground is necessary right now. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think there's always this thought exercise going on like that, right? There always, you know, there'll be innovative thinkers coming up with new ideas and strategies and approaches. And then there's those on the ground that are actually um, putting some stuff into practice. And we need to have that relationship. If we're going to advance our revolutionary thought, we need to have the, for lack of a better word, the thinkers constantly in communication with the doers and they give each other feedback back and forth. We use what it's a military technique called AAR after actions review. And after all our, all our, I'm going to say actions, conflicts, we sit down and do a very critical after actions review, whatever we do. And this is where we get our lessons learned. We will decide, okay, what did we do? Right. You know, what things went right? Even unexpectedly, they went right. What things went wrong? You know, we may have planned to do one thing and it totally did not work out like that. And then in the end, what lessons do we learn? So that way we can build, we create institutional knowledge about lessons learned. And these are the things we can pass on to the thinkers or other doers and say, listen, we want this kind of conflict before. And here's some of the things that you're going to be uh, confronted with that you probably didn't think about. Here are some of the things that we've tried that were good tactics or bad tactics. And we need to create this constant relationship with those who are um, thinking about strategy and those who are actually enacting and doing the tactics of that strategy. To keep that relationship alive so we can keep pushing. If anything, I want to push that envelope on how we strategically think so we can develop newer and better ways of doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to bring in the role that trauma plays in doing this work um, because so many people are so deeply traumatized right now and that can, to be honest, get in the way of the work in such dangerous and potentially deadly ways, especially to the extent that folks aren't actively seeking to heal that intergenerational trauma that so many of us, if not all of us, are carrying. Could you talk a little bit about the role that healing plays concurrently with folks being in a place to be able to actually show up more fully? We could speak about this from so many different directions, and I'm trying to think about where to be a better way. Let me go with this one, and then I'll come back and I'll address it another way. What I'm going to say now probably sounds very contradictory to anybody engaged in the field of psychology. When it comes down to trauma, indigenous people need to engage in conflict. Hmm. Now it sounds like, whoa, are you asking people who are already injured psychologically to get in into this kind of thing where it's going to be demanding and high stress and, and, and we might even cause more traumas or micro traumas. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to draw on Franz Fanon. And when he talked about the idea, I think he, he called it misrepresentation of identity. I think that's what he referred to it as. And he said, when you have this powerful force shaping your identity for you, you know, it's going to be negative because it's always to serve their, uh, their interest. He said, one of the most important revolutionary acts we could do is seizing control of our own identity. And then we start to build on it in such a way that it might even be oppositional to the, the very person trying to control it. The more likely it will be. Right? So he talks about this revolutionary act or the act of revolution opposing the colonizer as a psychologically healing kind of experience. And, and, and right? It, yeah. It, yeah, right. And yeah. to me, it's, it's the idea of empowerment. We're right. psychologically empowering ourselves because right. we are no longer shaping who I am by the limits imposed on me hmm. by this relationship with the colonizer. So 
we refer in our study, we refer to it as conflict therapy. Mm. I have never seen a more empowered people than those that get involved in the fights. They mm. come out of there with so much energy, so mm. much fire, mm. and it doesn't matter. You could have been hurt, you could have been beaten, you could right in the middle of a an arrest, you could be walk away bruised and battered and maced. And there's this feeling of triumph. There's a feeling that and it, it comes from you just having the courage to oppose the colonizer. You don't have to win the battle. You're winning the psychological battlefield mm. by just opposing, right? Because we are learning to re-empower ourselves. So conflict therapy, in my mind anyways, has become one of the most inspiring and, and most empowering kind of experiences we could have. Because we are suddenly shedding away so many of these illusions of absolute power over who we are and then how we can start to take control to some degree or another our culture, our, our way of life, and, and our own individual personality. We, we could start taking control of it. So I say, you know, I'm probably speaking against all rules of psychology, but I would say for those who are deeply traumatized by colonialism, you need to get out and fight. Hmm. Right? And, and it's been my personal experience, too. I've never felt anything more positive, reinforcing, or empowering than being in that role of warrior and fighting uh, against the colonizer. It, it, to me, it was very psychologically healing. It didn't matter physically what kind of injuries you may sustain. It was a psychological empowerment that was so much more important. But from another point of view, I think a lot of us or that come into the fights, you know, are, are carrying a lot of colonial baggage. So whether it's addictions, um, you know, alcoholism or drug abuse or even improper relationships, perhaps, you know, misogynistic kind of views, um, some, and I, I can't understand this, but we had, you know, you get some people that come into a fight purposely just so they could hook up to them. It's all about socializing to get with somebody else for a weekend or two. And to them, they, they, they're an opportunist, right? And they see this not so much as a fight, but as an opportunity to, to hook up with someone. So carrying those kind of baggages with them, that's problematic. From a leader's point of view, you're spending more time having to help shape and correct behavior and it pulls away from the time that you need to be doing for planning and preparing to take on the colonizer. So it becomes this real kind of burden to decolonize as a fight goes on. I like to say in the ideal world, it'd be nice to have our people come into a fight at a point where they're already healing. Like, I don't think we're going to be totally healed, but healing from colonialism where we're rejecting the values of a patriarchal society. We're rejecting the values of a society that believes in absolute power through sovereignty and such. And we're starting to reculturize, to indigenize who who we're supposed to be, right? To me, those people coming in like that will be much more helpful. They'll be able to contribute in, in the fight we're able to benefit from having uh, those kinds of decolonized attitudes, right? So, yes, I'd like to say it'd be great to have a lot of people come in where they're already on their journey of decolonization, so therefore healing, but a lot of times that doesn't happen. But I think the fight itself could provide inspiration for people to start decolonizing if they haven't started a journey yet. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that piece up. I mean, it's a, a viable question for me whether or not just about anything is salvageable from Western psychology. So that's right <laughs> at the outset. I'm, you know, not agnostic, highly skeptical, and rightly so if you ask me of that whole enterprise. You know, I mean, uh, yeah. why Fanon is not taught in every psych department in this yeah. continent is, you know, um, both astonishing and totally unsurprising. But if we want to be honest about healing, for sure. Yeah, totally picking up what you're putting down there. Thank you for that. And the final piece around that that I would want to ask you about relates to gender. So when it comes to the sort of machismo that can go along with, especially in a lot of revolutionary, radical, decolonial, BIPOC spaces on this continent, when we talk about warriorship, can be deadly and can, right, in that dominant society and even in some decolonial spaces, be, especially for men, it seems like, a space where they can sometimes just replicate some of the most toxic aspects of colonial Mm -hmm. gender roles instead of seeing warriorship as an opportunity to actually return to balance in a more whole way. Um, So could you talk about the aspect of colonial gender roles in warriorship and or decolonizing from that? Oh, we got a couple more hours. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> if we're going to go there, I mean, there's so much, right? Yeah. 
let's 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 latch on to the idea of machismo for a moment because I think people coming to warrior societies in the beginning, in the very beginning, like you know their first week here or or their, their first maybe like course that they do with us, come in with these notions of machismo. Now, obviously, you know this is this, this is what dominant society teaches them. So in their minds, because of course you know Hollywood reinforces this. Uh, if you ever spent any time in prison, it reinforces this. If you ever have any law enforcement or military background, it reinforces, you know, machismo is, is synonymous with the idea of the alpha male, right? So coming into a warrior society, there's these notions that you are really competing with the Western notion of the alpha males. These are the alpha males of the community, and they're all in there to compete against each other and prove who's the, the, the most glorious badass there is, right? And it's not. And a lot of these people will fail what we do because they feel like they can't fit in the right way. And I've had this. I had a guy fresh out of prison and he came out. Um, the World Society was hosting a, a survival course and we took him out. And by day three, I could see him mentally breaking down and he just couldn't understand why his machismo did not fit. Nor was it being replicated or endorsed or supported. If anything, he saw it being shut down consistently. I kept correcting him on, on attitude, kept correcting him on his approaches to how he was trying to do things, and he really got frustrated. So on day three, he was willing to quit. Now, this is a guy that was in amazing shape, young guy. Uh, he couldn't sit still. Like Every moment we had a break, he's dropping down doing push-ups, and he's, he's trying to build up his physical capability. Thinking that's the attitude he had to have with us. And he learned by day three that didn't fit at all. So when I told him, I said, look to these other people, and I gave him some names that were working with us. And I said, they had great examples, great examples of what the warrior character should be like. Now, he looked over and he looked at these guys and he thought they were docile. These are family-oriented men. They're always talking about matriarchal societies. And he said, I can't be like that. I can't, you know, I can't think like that. I said, but these are the guys that are really holding real traditional warrior values. Now, by no means does that uh, imply that they're somehow pacifist. It doesn't imply that they're somehow weaker. It doesn't imply that they're somehow not as capable as the alpha male machismo kind of mentality, right? I said, you just got to be able to see it better. It's more complex. I said, they use their energy and their strength to support and, and help nation build around matriarchal societies. And if anything, you don't see them run around and, you know, like banging on their chest and posturing. I said, because they're not caught up with this Western notion of male insecurity. And if anything, that's what I tend to see with machismo. It's this consistent posturing because there's a real sense of insecurity. Now, the insecurity, um, you know, this is just me kind of tossing my ideas out here, obviously comes from the relationship with the colonizer, where the European male has imposed or dominated uh, the indigenous male, making the indigenous male feel inferior making them feel like they're no longer alpha males. They're, they're not the strong, uh, stoic warrior types. And now we're overcompensating because of this insecurity in that relationship with the, the colonizing male or the notion of the, the colonizing male, what makes that up. We're competing on their battlegrounds. We go into their value systems. We go into their philosophies and we try to be better at Western thought than they are. And, and obviously, you know, it's a male-dominated thought, right? So my experience has been that most people engaged in machismo are just trying to out-alpha male the colonizer, right? As in, in a kind of place of overcompensating and insecurity. I feel much more, not just respectful, but I feel much more confident when I see somebody that doesn't have to make those displays. Somebody that could demonstrate real skill, real good strategic thought, and not have to run around pounding their chest and, and hooting and hollering about how much of a badass they are. So I really, you know, the quiet, for lack of a word, the quiet professional, we'll call it the quiet traditionalist, mm -hmm. right? And it's that person that I say is much, much more useful. They're much more beneficial to a fight. They're not bringing in, you know, obviously what we refer to as toxic masculinity. They're not bringing that in. And if anything, they're supporting the message that you have to oppose that, that you have to bring it back to a societal dynamic that endorses and supports a matriarchal society. And then when we start to understand, for us, this goes back a lot to around the idea of sacred responsibility. If we understand that our role is about protecting creation, if our role is about protecting a life force, 
it doesn't take long to be able to explain the connection of creation to that of indigenous woman and then understand how our role is to be more supportive and to be more about uh, reproducing those kind of societies. But most times, guys don't come in with that attitude. So a lot of times, I'm doing a lot of unteaching. And there's a lot they have to unlearn around what it means to be, in their minds, this, this badass. Mm-hmm. And we have to reorientate them. And that's what we mean by warrior teachings earlier. They have a very powerful fighting spirit trying desperately hard to be this alpha male. And then we have to reorientate that energy to a place that is much more supportive and on board with rebuilding our nations. Right. Absolutely. Would you want to, I know we've talked about so many different topics, add on anything to whatever has come up in dialogue so far? Well, let's, let's come back to the idea, like we were saying, warriorship, right? One of the words I use a lot is warriorhood. Being a warrior is not a self-declared condition. I, I see it so many times. I see people come out and just start saying, you know, maybe they show up at a few protests or something, and they start saying, I'm a warrior. Well, you know, that would not cut it if it was a couple hundred years ago. You know, I can't imagine Crazy Horse or, or Geronimo or Tecumseh or Pontiac saying, oh, that's okay. That's that's it. You know, you don't have to demonstrate any real skill. You don't have to demonstrate any real capability or commitment to fulfilling your sacred responsibility. Just so, showing up and self-declaring, that's problematic. So with Warrior Societies, we, we try to take this as serious as, as we can. And we talk about the warrior arts. And the warrior arts are the, the art around protecting your homeland. So these are skills. Well, you know, Some of them are military-based skills. Others are cultural-based skills. Others are ceremonial skills. And we engage in this idea of self-discipline, self-control for the sake of self-actualization. And the actualization part is trying to achieve our highest potentialities around being that warrior. So that means a lot of times we are practicing our warrior skills, you know, not to go show off or do anything like that with, it's practicing our skills so that way I could be the best possible warrior I could be as an individual. How good of that kind of warrior could I be? So when we come into a conflict, we have something to bring to the table. We have skills and capabilities to bring there. And it's purely because of that commitment to constantly trying to improve our skill sets. And that's what we refer to as warriorhood. Every day we're engaged in warriorhood. So whether it is a physical skill set, it could be anything around, say, weapons use, uh, self-defense, military skills like land navigation, tactical, first aid, all these different skill sets. But it's also, as we were saying earlier, it studies around tactical and strategic thinking. And on the flip side of that, because we say not only are we trying to be empire destroyers, we're also trying to be nation builders. We're spending a lot of time looking at what does it mean to have to rebuild a nation from scratch. After an experience, an apocalypse, where every institution in our nations, the political institutions, social institutions, economic institutions, have all been decimated, what does it mean to rebuild a nation? So we're, we're engaged a lot in this concept around studies of nation building. So what that does is it takes an, an immense amount of time to get good at these skill sets and these strategies and these ideas. And that's what warriorhood becomes, is this pursuit of excellence in those skill sets. So when somebody self-declares and just watching and says, I'm a warrior, I'm thinking, man, you are just not doing a service or an honor to your ancestors before you, because I don't think you would, you would have made the cut back then. <laughs> but those of us who are doing the best we can to honor our ancestors, by trying to be the very best possible warrior that's within our own potential, that to me are the ones that are serving the idea of respecting our ancestors. If they set the standard for us, we're just going to live up to them. And we're really looking to spend a lot of time developing our warriorhood so that we can bring more to the battlefield than simply just a physical body. Right. Thank you for that. Uh, like so many things that are necessary right now, it can be identified by community. You don't actually have to talk yourself up on any of the fronts. Or if you're doing the thing, people will probably notice, right? Uh, and that individualism can corrupt what could otherwise be potentially, say, pure experience of the process of actually right caring enough to commit that level of discipline over the course of a lifetime, as opposed to it being about that kind of posturing that you can see so often. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you for bringing that discipline and dedication yeah. and everything that you did up. I appreciate that. Well, we are indeed at the end of our time already. Thank you so much for your time and energy, everything that you shared and for the work that you do. I'm sincerely appreciative that you've shared all that you did with us.
thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And anytime you want me back, just let me know. Thank you so much. You just heard my dialogue with Mi'kmaq warrior Sakaj Ward. What were the warrior trainings of your ancestors? How did they understand land defense and practice self-determination? Do you know people you could talk with about starting or joining a warrior society? What would be the first step in that process? Just wondering. Freedom is ours, yeah. Freedom is ours. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadia, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil, deceitful and coward. People in power are power to the people. It's the hour of the peaceful. Freedom is ours, yeah. Freedom is ours.